podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carol Matchett. How are you, sir? Sensational. How about yourself? I am tremendous. I had a wonderful weekend without any Premier League football. I managed to watch the AFL Grand Final, the NRL Semi Final, the Super League Grand Final, watch some boxing. Uh, yesterday, then, I watched a bit of rugby. I watched the All Blacks Australia game from the Saturday. So all in all, a successful weekend for me. Um, you being a football journalist, you were obviously most likely covering some of the international bilge that was on at the weekend. Let me start this podcast by asking you your opinion on the news today that Gareth Southgate has left both Trent and Fikayo Tomori out of the squad to face Germany. The Tomori one in particular grinds my gears. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure what, what's the idea, plan, um, intent to get back to some sort of ability to win football matches at the moment. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest, I didn't bother watching the England game. Um, the, the one against Italy, there's very, very little at stake there. There was much more interesting teams to watch and I had no expectation of uh, any kind of you know England big performance or anything like that. It seems to be very, very stagnant at the moment how they're playing and how they're setting up and how their build-up play is it's uh it's not very interesting to watch to be quite frank so i didn't bother and i'm not very surprised to be honest that trent isn't involved i think he's if anything going to go in the other direction and be a bit, little bit more what he considers to be safe and functional and positionally whatever you want to call it in um in line with how they want to play so I wouldn't have expected Trent to come in at a moment like this. And to be honest, I couldn't honestly say he deserves to start for England because it's been a really, really dreadful start to the season from him. So if we take, you know, the fact that he's better than most of the other players out of the equation, just in simple form and in terms of international call-ups, uh, if it wasn't a Liverpool player, if it wasn't an England player sort of thing, and we were just looking at it objectively, would you really say that he's done enough to be involved in, a, in an international game of any kind of note this season? Probably not. Uh, but but, it, more... but it, should that matter, Carl? Luke Shaw is in the squad. The guy can't get a game at United. Yeah, yeah that's Aaron absolutely... has been absolutely awful for 18 I'm, months. Can't get a game I'm, at United. I completely agree with this. I'm just saying in Trent's specific case, if it was just about that, then you couldn't really argue the case. But since we know that it's not just down to that, it is... Um, not really anything that we can answer because there's no clarity of the situation. There's no real knowledge of what the attempt to do is. Um, we know that Trent's not been a favourite for the last what, two, three years while he should have been. So I don't, I don't, I didn't expect that to change at all, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Tomori, like you say, is probably a bit more of an 
interesting stroke frustrating one because there are so many defenders, centre-backs in this squad who either don't play, not been in good form or have not necessarily shown that they are, at the very least, Champions League calibre at the moment, whether you want to say that's overall ability or form, and I think he's consistently shown that over the last probably two years, definitely last season, started this year perfectly fine again as well, so it is a, a strange one, but I just think that maybe, we've spoken about this before, managers sort of get to a point where they just play those who they are most familiar with, and be that frustrating or safe or whatever word you want to put in there, that's what they turn to over and over again, and it doesn't allow for great progress and it doesn't allow for a jolt to the system when things are not going well they try to almost safety their way back to positive results and I'm not a fan of it but that's what a lot of them do Yeah I mean look England are the four lions they've got three on their shirt and a cowardly one in the dugout and that is just what it's going to be and with a bit of luck they will get through the group stage and then get knocked out in the round of 16 uh, because that's what they deserve Let's move on. Today we are here to talk about Groups E and F in the upcoming World Cup. We have done A and B and C and D in separate podcasts. They came out last week, so go and listen to those. But let's start with Group E, Carl. Spain, Costa Rica, Germany and Japan. Very tough draw for Costa Rica, you'd have to say. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Um... I mean, I don't actually think that this group is as incredible as it sounds, to be honest. Uh, I I think that the two European nations are below their best right now. Um, Japan, I really like how they play. I don't suppose that they'll go particularly far in the tournament, and we'll, we'll discuss obviously now in a bit more depth how we think they'll do in the group stage, but I really like the way that they're set up. They obviously have similar deficiencies to in previous competitions, but... Costa Rica, obviously, in terms of the quartet of the minnows and the ones who did not necessarily qualify in outrageously impressive circumstances, I suppose we can say. Um, but I think most of the focus is actually going to be on Germany rather than Spain in this group in terms of when when um, when the competition starts and who people are looking at to be really, really good and all that. Because Spain, we kind of know from the last Euros... Uh, that they're already looking to be in a bit of a transition state. There's a lot of Mm. slightly, I'd say, less familiar names compared to previous squads at the moment. And people like, you know, the hair have been dropped and Thiago not really been involved and all the rest of it. So there's a bit of intrigue there, but I think an acceptance that they're not where they want to be just yet. Whereas Germany, I think it's kind of people just expect them to be amazing and get to the semifinals every single time, regardless of anything. Yeah, I mean, Germany have the pedigree, four-time winners. And I think there's a lot of their players that are highly thought of that just haven't been in good form for the last year or so. But let's start with the Spanish. So they won Group B in the UEFA uh, phase of the qualifying. Uh, They finished with 19 points ahead of uh, Sweden, Greece, Georgia and Kosovo. It is, it's a decent squad, but it's not a squad that, screams tournament winners and I think there's particular issues with the defensive group Uh, the goalkeepers in the current squad Unai Simon who has established himself as the number one David Rea of Brentford who I mean he's a decent keeper but there are some quite glaring flaws in this game 
And Robert Sanchez, who for my money is probably the most overrated goalkeeper in the Premier League. Um, I, I do like Simon. I just think when you've gone from Casillas and then De Gea and what he was pre-2018 to Unai Simon, I think that is quite a drastic drop-off. Defensively, though, this is where I think there's real problems. Aspilicueta, he's well past his best. Danny Carvial, well past his best. Jordi Alba, well past his best. Jose Gea is a decent player. We've talked about him before as as somebody one of the top clubs should probably be looking at. Uh, Hugo Guillemont's a good player. I prefer him in midfield to centre-back. But the starting centre-back pairing right now is Pau Torres and Eric Garcia. And I just don't think you're winning anything of note with those two. Individually, I'm not keen on Garcia. I do like Torres, but I think he needs a more physical, vocal presence next to him. And I just don't think he's going to get that with with Eric Garcia. Now, there is obviously Americ Laporte, who, who, when fit, will probably be in the squad. Uh, Inigo Martinez might come back into the squad, but they're both left-footers like Torres, and the balance isn't right. I'd really like to see Pedro Porro get a call-up, the right wing-back from um, from Sporting. I think he's been incredible the last two and a half years. Uh, but other than that, only Regulon and Marcus Alonso have been called up in the last 12 months, and neither of them are in what you'd call good form. I have to say the the defense is like I would say three levels below where it was when Spain were at their peak, um, which is fine. You don't necessarily expect them to stay where they were at their best for all eternity, but I think that the problem is that it's such an enormous drop off. I mean, I like Unai Simon. I think he's a, a decent all round goalkeeper. I think he can be particularly good um, going forward in terms of you know, making himself an established Champions League sort of level goalkeeper and all the rest of it. But the real thing about Spain, and you talk about Casillas was there, it was, it was Casillas, Canizares, Reina, it was Molina, it was loads of them all really, really pushing each other. Just Victor Valdez? Now we'll ignore him. But <laughs> all of them really pushing each other for just for a spot in the squad. Like, you know, it was, it was so competitive just to be number two or number three or a Barcelona player. Um, so the the big thing that they have now is obviously such a huge drop off. I mean, fine, whatever you think about them individually, the fact that that these two goalkeepers are playing for Brentford and Brighton that would never ever ever have been the case before. Um, you know, uh, nobody from Spain's top clubs, like Athletic, obviously a, a historical club, but you wouldn't say that they're one of the best clubs in Spain by by a long shot. So it's it's a very very unusual circumstance for them to be in in terms of the goalkeepers and at centre back. Even more so. Um, I mean, you joke about Valdez, but we all know I don't really like, I've never liked Sergio Ramos, but my God, do they miss someone like his presence. It's not the fact that he's, you know, an unbelievably great positional defender or anything like that. It's not about being a, a Baresi or whatever. It's about kicking everybody else into gear and making sure they're in the right place, being aerially dominant, being able to turn and run with a defender when you, uh, sorry, with an attacker when you let them run in behind them. I, I like Pau Torres as a, a standalone centre back, but he needs someone so so aggressive beside him and so you know determined and organised and like really really on the front foot. He's a he's a good second centre back, but he's nowhere near mm. an elite on his own. And he's not a bad he's not a bad successor to PK. Yeah, PK yeah, had so. Puyol and then he had Ramos. Now Puyol obviously a much better defender, but like you said, it's that aggression, 
that leadership, that organization, that bite, that just that nastiness that Ramos brought to the team and who y'all before him. These are all, and Diego Loriente, I missed in the squad as well. These are all very cultured centre backs. They're all very nice players, but there's no bastard among this group. And and Spain have always had a bastard at centre back. You can go back to Nadal, you know, and and obviously before him as well, but just in sort of more modern ter- modern terms, Nadal into Puyol into Ramos. There was always just that bastard there who was happy to boot someone up into the stands if that's what it took. And even say, like, even before they got to that really, really good stage of being, you know, a world-class team, they even had, like, Ivan Helguera, Ivan Campo, both of them would kick you into the stands. Rafael Alcorta, exactly the same. Um, even at the fullback then, Sergi Barjuan was exactly the same, like, little and annoying, and Abelardo at the centre as well. But all of them super aggressive, super, like, Disciplined and organised, really good technically, but so, so demanding in terms of the level that everybody else around them had to play at. And they don't have, in that entire back five, really, other than like if Carvajal's playing, they don't really have a massive, massive winner in there. I know Jordi Alba has, has won, obviously, a lot with Barca, but I've never really seen him as one of the main leaders of, of the team. I think he's a, a follower and a little rat, to be perfectly honest. But they don't have, especially in that middle triangle of centre-backs and goalkeeper, anybody who's experienced in winning relentlessly. And that's a big, big miss for them, I think. Um, they very, very much need, given the relative lack, let's say, of other people who have been in the frame even to be called up, um, to sort out the midfield. And I think if you if you are able to get a perfect midfield, then you could rely a little bit less on the centre of the defence needing to be absolutely perfect and give them a little bit of time to you know form a real partnership and be their own new style of centre-back. But at the minute, the rest of the team is not exactly lighting the place up either, is it? And that's a, a, a knock-on effect of the defence being poor, I think. I agree. I agree. And then we can look at the midfield then. You've got Sergio Busquets is 34. Uh, this is likely his last international tournament and maybe the last time we see him on a on a big stage, he's likely to leave Barca in the summer and head for the MLS by all accounts. You've got Marcus Lorente, who's a good player, who I think fooled people into thinking he was a great player when he had that outstanding 2021 season. Uh, scored 13 goals, but notable that he hasn't scored a goal this season or at all last season. Um, you've got Koke, who's you know a very good player, but a little bit past his best and starting to show the effects of a career spent under Diego Simeone. I mean, the guy looks like he runs in concrete wellies at times. Mm. You've got Gavi, who's absolutely magnificent. There's no doubt about it, but he's 18 years of age. You've got Pedri, who's incredible, but he's 19. Then you've got Rodri, who might be the best holding midfielder on the planet, but is he starting ahead of Busquets? Is he no, starting he with be. Busquets? That's a ridiculous decision. I mean, yeah. I, you know, whatever about Luis Enrique. I, I like him. I, Luis Enrique as a manager, I like the things that he's done to turn the team around, his insistence. I'm relying on Sergio Busquets as a gaming game out starter is is verging on perverse at this point. Given the rest of the team's regeneration, given the rest of the team's sort of youthfulness and energy in in midfield and all that kind of stuff that he's tried to do, and yet that so crucial position is still this guy who, for the most part, embarrasses trees at how still they are. 
Uh, yeah. He just cannot turn. He can't run. He can't cover channels anymore. It's like, on the ball. Obviously, he's still largely exceptional. He cannot cover the ground that this defence in the state that it is at the minute needs to. And even as good as Pedri and Gavi are as kids in terms of their maturity and um, game intelligence and all the rest of it, there's still spaces there behind them because yeah, they are of course. You know, very, very young players. And Rodri would feel this so much better. Or a double pivot would feel this so much better. But not just continue playing Sergio by himself. No, I agree. And I mean, if you had two dynamic box-to-box engines next to him, Sergio will be fine. But you don't, and you're not going to because you're Spain, and he's going to get exposed. And that is just, you know, it's going to be a disappointment. He really should have retired from international football after the last World Cup. Uh, The last midfielder in the squad then is Carlos Soler, who's a good player, very good player, uh, but likely to just make up uh, squad plays. Those who've been included in the last 12 months, but not in this squad, Thiago, don't really understand why he's not in the squad, but he's not a favourite of of Luis Enrique and likely won't go to the World Cup. Uh, Mikel Moreno, who's been really good for Real Sociedad the last couple of years. Pablo Fornals, been impressive for West Ham. Uh, Bryce Mendes, who moved to Sociedad in the summer. Brahim Diaz, I'm not a big fan of it. He's more of a winger than a midfielder, but he's been in the squad the last 12 months. Sergi Roberto, another one who probably should be put out to pasture. And Danny Almo, who again is more of a final third player. There isn't, among those that have been called up, there isn't really, um, other than Thiago, there isn't really one that screams at you, you know, I should be in the team. But it, in all likelihood, none of those will be called up for the tournament. And he will roll with what he's got in the squad right now. Yeah, I wonder whether Miguel will get back in. Uh, Marino, if, if Sociedad have a good run and he's playing well, then maybe so. And Danny Olmo should, if he's back to full fitness. But that's uh, obviously a big doubt at the moment. So he might miss out just by circumstance as well. It's not an incredible group of midfielders compared to what came before. And I think we probably have to accept that and move on. You know, this isn't the, the generation that Spain had before. It could be very, very good again if... You know, Gavi and Bergen, whoever else, become as good as they could be. But at the moment, it's like an in-between, isn't it? It's it's the end of the last ones and the start of the new ones. And they're not quite got that mix quite right yet. But I mean, like I said before, put Rodri in, gives you a really, really good starting point at the very least. And then if you've got, even if it's one of Bergen or Gavi, and then the other one is a more... Um, 8 out of 10 to 7 out of 10 instead of a 8 to 9 out of 10, you know, a Coque or a Jolente, depending on need, then I think that the Spain's midfield would be pretty well placed, to be honest. It would be not the most um, athletic, necessarily, all the time, unless Jolente is in there. It wouldn't necessarily be the, the speediest in transition play, but you wouldn't get the ball off them very much either. Um, there's, there's still bits to work out. They're nowhere near perfect, and I don't expect them to go ridiculously deep into the tournament, but at least they've got building blocks for you know the next two World Cups probably after this one as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I do agree with that. And I, and I think the same can be said about the attack as well. So you've got Alvaro Morata. Uh, you've got Marco Asensio. I'm not really sure how he gets in the Spain squad because the last time he impressed me for Real Madrid was probably 2017. Um, you've got Ferran Torres who... 
struggles to get games at Barcelona, but he does play well for Spain, and his goal record for Spain is quite good. You've got Jeremy Pino, who's a, a big big talent who likely will become a star. Um, Borja Iglesias, I'm not a huge fan of. Nico Williams, um, not that Nico, or this could be Nico. Um, Athletic Bilbao, younger brother of Inaki Williams. He's very talented. Pablo Sarabia, I, I, I'm confused as to why he continues to get in the squad. And then others who will probably get a look before the World Cup. Uh, Mikel Oyarzabal, for me, he should be in the squad if fit. Uh, Brian Hill can't get a game at Spurs, so wouldn't even be considering him. Rodrigo is in or has started the season quite well for Leeds, but he always flatters to deceive. Ansu Fati, who's probably the most probably most gifted player Spain have now, but obviously the concern is is the knee. And then maybe the oddest case of any player right now in world football, Raul de Tomas, who has always been a bit of a, a narc, but he did really well at Espanol. And when they went down, he almost single-handedly carried them back into La Liga. He had a great season in La Liga last year. He wanted to leave. There was a whole bunch of, you know, back and forth. The transfer window closed. He was still an Espanol player. And then on the 13th of September, it was announced he's moved to Rio Vallecano and won't be allowed to play any matches for them until January 2023. Rather than just knuckling down at the club he was at and playing and probably securing himself a place in the World Cup squad, I think he's probably harpooned that completely, and I don't imagine he's going to get to go to the World Cup, given he won't have played a single game in six months by the time the World Cup starts. Um, and there was all kinds of mad rumours that his agent headbutted the president of Espanyol and all sorts. But, you know, at 27, in his prime, off a great season, I would have made an argument that it should have been him starting for Spain at this World Cup and not Alvaro Morata because he's just in better form and I think he's a better player right now but he's probably going to be out of the mix for the for this tournament Yeah, I think he's probably jettisoned uh, any chances of going let alone starting and to be honest, I mean, he did have a good year last year for sure, he's a very um, I think a little bit of a one-dimensional number nine. I mean, you play him off the shoulder and you let him run and you let him annoy defenders and all the rest of it, but he's not going to contribute hugely to the build-up. I think Spain do benefit more from a Rodrigo more than a Raul de Tomas, to be honest, um, even if Rodrigo is not great in front of goal all the time. I think the bigger issue here is that we're, we're discussing distinctly level two number nines here. Like whether it's Raul, Rodrigo, Alvaro, they're not. Anywhere near great number nines, are they? I mean, Morata has the biggest uh, reputation, let's say, because of the clubs that he's played for. But yeah. he is wildly inconsistent. He can be very, very good on his day. He can be totally anonymous and actively harmful to your team's chances of winning when he feels like it as well. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if Borja Iglesias goes just to have a bit more of a, a consistent presence up front. Not necessarily consistently great, but consistent at what he does. Uh, there are obviously still calls for people like Jan Aspas to go and he be the sort of the, the alternative forward, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen now either. 
Um, so I, I gotta say, there's, there's so many not good enough players in this squad and around this squad. I mean, Sarabia still, what are you doing? Come on, move on. It's just ridiculous that he's still involved. I would probably take one of Jeremy or um, Williams just for you know that extra bit of speed and unpredictability and someone really trying to get themselves in there. Ansu Fati, if he's fit to be a 20-minute player off the bench, has to go, in my opinion. He's, he's not there yet for Barcelona in terms of starting. They're being really, really careful with him. But I would still take him if uh, you know if Spain are willing to do the same sort of thing, not to do what they did with Pedri and Gabi last year and play them in like twelve straight games across two tournaments. Yeah, I mean, to, to paraphrase Rick Pitino, Fernando Torres is not walking through the door. David Villa is not walking through the door. This is what you've got, and it's it's a far cry from what Spain once had in attack. Uh, Alvaro Morata confuses me greatly. Um, he is a distinctly average player, and yet he has played in his career for Real Madrid, Juventus, Real Madrid again, Chelsea, Atletico Madrid, and Juventus, and now Atletico Madrid again. And he just... You can maybe point out two impressive seasons that he's ever had. One at Real... And the first year at Juve, where he scored 20 goals, that's it. There is 20 goal seasons. But in league form, his uh, his highest contribution was 15 goals. Now, it was in 26 matches, which is a fair turnaround. But I just I don't understand how it is that top clubs continue to pay large amounts of money to this fella. I mean, he's moved for... 15 million to Juventus, back to Real for 25, to Chelsea for 60, to Atletico Madrid for 58. Juve took him on a one year loan worth 10 million with an option to buy at 40 million, kept him for another year for a 10 million loan fee, and then just decided they didn't want him and sent him back. And he just, he doesn't want it. It's, it he's this generation's Mark van Bommel who was also a distinctly average player, who stayed in in the Netherlands till he was 28, then moved to Barcelona, and somehow between the ages of 28 and 35, played for Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and AC Milan. Uh, and played quite a lot at Bayern Munich, despite being mediocre. It, it, it There's just these players. I mean, maybe it's because they will do anything the manager asks of them, and they, they work really hard in training or whatever. But the the fluff around average players needs to stop. Um, what are your expectations for Spain in this tournament? I do not have them among the teams I think can win it, but I think they can go maybe to the semi-finals if the draw breaks right for them. Um, yes, potentially because I do think that they've got match winners on their day and. Possible that they get quite a, a decent run, at least to the quarterfinals. Uh, I do think that they will go through the group, but it depends on if they come top or second. I think, I, I think maybe Spain comes second in this group, and if that's the case, and they face Belgium in the next round, perhaps let's say. I don't honestly know. I think that would be a coin toss, to be honest. Um, I think that they're. 
favourites against too many of them. I do think they'll go through, but I don't think anything further than the quarters for me. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do think that's fair. Um, if they, yeah, if they win the group, they would likely face. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. Maybe Croatia, uh, but if they lose, it's Belgium. I think Belgium should wipe the floor with them, but it, you just don't know with that Belgium team, as we will discuss. Uh, let's move on past Spain then to Costa Rica, um, the home of Paolo Wanchop. Um, this isn't a squad littered with high-end talent. There's a couple of players that everybody will be uh, familiar with. Brian Oviedo, formerly of Everton and Sunderland. He's still knocking about. Brian Ruiz, once of Fulham. Uh, always a very elegant, talented player, but never quite managed to put it all together. Uh, at 37, this is probably his last hurrah. Brandon Aguilera who was bought by Nottingham Forest in the summer. Apparently quite a talented player. Um, he's back on loan with Guanacasteca and uh, should be in the in England next year. Joel Campbell, who I'm not sure actually exists. He was owned by Arsenal for like 40 years. Hmm. How is he still only go- 30? Yes, and he's got 118 caps, but nobody has ever seen him play football. He was at Arsenal from 2011 to 2018, played 23 league games. He didn't play 23 league games for Arsenal, surely not. He did. (laughs) He did. He played 40 games for them overall. But he had loans galore. Laurent, uh, Betis, Olympiacos, Villarreal, Sporting, Betis again. None of them went all that well, Bar Olympiacos, he was okay. Uh, And it's just been a, a bit of a journeyman career. But I remember when Arsenal signed him and Wenger glowed over him, absolutely glowed over him and, and made out like this was the second coming of Thierry Henry. Um, it, it may, maybe Terry Henry, who might be somebody else from you know down the road, but certainly not, not the Frenchman. Um, outside of them, I'm not really seeing anybody else. Oh, Christian Gamboa is a decent player, the right back from Bochum, but he is injured at the minute. Um, I'm not really sure what to make of them, Carl. They, like you said, they they didn't come through in great circumstances. They, out of the CONCACAF group, they hit the playoffs where they played New Zealand, scored after three minutes, and then one of the dullest games of football you'll ever see took place. But New Zealand had real reason, real reason to be miffed about the outcome because they had a goal disallowed. VAR was involved a couple of times and I thought VAR got it wrong basically in both big, big calls, the, the goal and the red card. What did you make of, or did you, did you watch that? Did you, did you, did yeah, you yeah, harm yourself by watching that game? <laughs> and what do you make of this team? Did I did watch it, and I only woke up from it about three days ago. Uh, it was every bit as dull as almost every Costa Rica game I've ever watched in my life. Um, they are not high up on my list of enjoyable teams to to watch play. Slightly above um, Honduras, perhaps, but not not by much. Um, Costa Rica are an odd side because they seem 
sometimes like they could have a bit of you know flair and invention about them and a few players that they have had over the years are like technically quite good and quite tricky and look like they would be exciting but they actually put themselves together as such a combative side and it's all about like shape first organization first defense first we'll score a goal and then we'll worry if we have to do anything else afterwards it's not the the most fun thing to watch the the thing i will say for them is you know we, we joke about their qualifying not being particularly good and it wasn't all that impressive but they almost got through uh the normal qualification stage in, in North and Central America rather than having to go through the playoff. I think it was only goal difference that United States finished above them in the end. But we covered United States in one of the other podcasts and said how unimpressive they have been. So as close as Costa Rica almost got, that's not actually by them being sensational, but rather USMNT being largely dreadful. Uh, Costa Rica, either side of the pandemic, went 17 games from mid-2019 to mid-2021 with one win which doesn't bode too well. Um, obviously had an upturn in fortunes in the early qualifying rounds and all that kind of thing. And of late, they've only had one defeat since November 2021, which one defeat in a year going into the World Cup, if that's what it ends up being, they've got one more game to go. That's pretty good form to be in. But you look at the score lines and all of them are exactly the same. I haven't watched them all back, but I'd be pretty certain I could go and watch any one of those games and it would be exactly the same as any of the other ones. They are 1-0, 2-1, 2-0, 1-0. 2-1, It's very, very Central America, let's say. Quite a few of the nations around there play in a very similar sort of way. That's how they can compete with the nations who have obviously more resources than them in their qualifying area. Um, and they have a really, really good ethic in terms of the, the national team identity and really fighting for the shirt and all that kind of thing. We've seen it over and over again with those nations at the World Cup. And at other tournaments as well, if you watch them. So I expect that they will be exactly the same as they have been for the last decade, exactly the same as Honduras have been for the last decade, exactly the same as El Salvador are, and quite a few of the other teams in that sort of area, Panama and all the rest of them. They are very similar in setup. They're very similar in outlook and in how they define themselves. And I would imagine that, let's say, Spain-Costa Rica in that opening game, for example, you are going to get about 75% possession for Spain, all of it in front of Costa Rica's eight-man defence with just a couple of them running, shuttling side to side. Come and break us down, they'll say, and we'll be happy with the point in the opening game. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. And like with a couple of other um, Central American teams, when things go against them, they do tend to stray beyond the line of what's actually allowed in a game of football and can become overly physical and, you know, potentially end up with nine men. Um, my expectation, Carl, is that they will finish bottom of this group. I'd be very surprised if anything else is the outcome. Agree. Should we move on? We should move on. Let's go to Germany then. Gr- Germany won Group J of European qualifying, 27 points, nine wins, one defeat, North Macedonia, Romania, Armenia, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. Not exactly the creme de la creme, but still impressive to rattle off nine wins. This German squad has some issues, but when you look at it, there's there's still a lot of great players in it. Um... Manuel Neuer, not in the most recent squad, but he will be the starting goalkeeper. 
the question then is who the backups are. They would have hoped, I think, by now that Mark Andre Terstegen would have surpl- uh, supplanted um, Nauer, and he probably should have done a couple of years ago, but he has fallen off. Kevin Trapp, Oliver Bauman, and Bernd Leno are all decent keepers, but again, none of them ever became what they were expected to be. This was meant to be the golden generation of German goalkeeping, with Nauer sort of aging out, and then these others coming through behind them, and there's a couple of others, including Timo Horn and Loris Karius, who were expected to be a lot more than they became. Um, but in Manuel Nauer, they do still have one of the five best keepers on the planet. Defensively, I like some of the options. For example, I really like David Rom. I think he's a very good left-back. Um, Matthias Ginter is, is an okay centre-back. Tilo Carrere is a decent centre-back. Nicolas Sula... Again, just one that didn't become what he should have been in the knee injury, did him no favours. Uh, Benjamin Henricks looked like he was going to be a star at Leverkusen. The Monaco move was a disaster. He's been okay for Leipzig, but nothing more than that. Armiel Belakotchap looks like he might be a star in the making, but he is uncapped as things stand. Robin Gosens is another very good left-back. Uh, and Nico Schlotterberg is, I think, without question, the best centre-back they have right now. And um, one that they can build with for the future. Uh, others who aren't in this most recent squad, Antonio Rudiger, who'll likely be in the squad. Lucas Kloistermann, who's a good, versatile defender. Low ceiling, but always a consistent 6 or 7 out of 10. Jonathan Tha. Another one that never developed anything close to what he should have become. Uh, Robin Koch, who can't stay fit. Christian Gunter, who's a solid run-of-the-mill fullback. And uh, Ridley Baku, who... If he kicked on from the season before last, he would be the automatic starting right-back, right-wing-back, whatever you want. But he hasn't. He stagnated a little bit. Um, there's talent there, Carl. I'm just not sure that there is a cohesive defence in that group. Yeah, I probably agree. And I think it's a little bit surprising that they haven't tried a back three at the very least because a few of those players who are among Mm. the better ones have always looked good at club level in a back three. I mean, Hansi Flick is obviously a 4-2-3-1 guy or a 4-3-3 guy. He's different variations in that midfield triangle at times, but I don't think I've really seen him play a back three I'm not sure um, but like Sula in the middle of a back three fine uh, Rudiger obviously we've seen him on the left of a back three really good Ginza's played in the back three Tila Carrera is probably your archetype not, not right back so loads of them would fit but fine fair enough the problem I think that they've got is that a few of those players are not in great form with their clubs at the minute either um, Robin Gorsons obviously is not really in the in the team all the time uh, Antonio Rudiger has not been in the team all the time at Real Madrid. They even played him at left back a little bit uh, in pre-season, which is not where you want to be seeing him. Jonathan Tarr, like you say, he looks really good at times. He can go on good runs of form, but then he will just be off a cliff. It's a very, very hit and mix squad. I think that this is a better group of defenders overall than Spain's, for example, if we compare yes. them because they're in the same uh, group. It will be really interesting to see who they take as like the extra one, if you like, because there's a 
a 26-man squad instead of a 23, so I think that's a good opportunity to take someone like Belakoc up, see if he can develop a, a partnership with whoever you want as your main starter, if that's Rudiger or if that's Schotterbeck, who didn't actually start against Hungary the other day. Maybe Sula just on account of the fact he's got a lot of caps. I like Ginter. I quite like him. He's a, a good organiser. He's not obviously the most physically imposing defender that they could possibly have, but I think he's a good one, maybe as the slightly more of a leader variety than... Um, if he has someone who's really aggressive and, and maybe quick over the ground alongside him as well. Uh, I think that the, obviously the big strength of Germany here is in midfield. They still have maybe the actual starting number nine to sort out or the arrangement around the number nine or whatever. But unlike Spain, where I don't think the midfield is yet sorted out either and doesn't protect the defence, I think Germany's midfield is largely exceptional. That hasn't actually translated to results of a positive nature as yet. But I think if you gave probably almost any nation the opportunity to play a double pivot of Gundogan and Kimmich, they would take it. Yes, I do agree with that. I, I th- th- They're both remarkably good players. So you've got those two. Um, you've got, in the current squad, the, the other midfielders, Kai Havertz, more an attacking midfielder, final third player. Uh, Maximilian Arnold of Wolfsburg, who's a, a solid presence he's not a spectacular player but he is solid he's reliable uh jamal musiala obviously more an attacking player and a sensational talent um jonas hoffman as a winger decent player as a central midfielder decent player but not not, nothing to get overly excited about uh leon goretzka just form has been an issue for him for probably about eight months now you've got anton stack of Mines, who, who looks a good player, um, only 23 and sort of had a breakout year last year. Um, Florian Newhouse was linked with us and then fell off a cliff. Julian Vagel, who's now back, obviously, in the Bundesliga at Mönchengladbach with uh, Newhouse. He, when he was at, when he first went to Dortmund, he looked like he was the natural successor to Busquets at Barcelona. Like he's going to do two years there and then Barca will come and pluck him and bring him in and they'll just, that'll be the succession plan. He had a horrendous broken ankle and has never fully recovered from it, has never been the same player. Uh, They've got Julian Brand, they've got Julian Draxler, um, both of whom have never become the players that people expected them to be. I think Draxler in particular has been disappointing. He's now at Benfica. Florian Wirtz, they're crossing everything I think that he'll be back in time for the World Cup but I, I, it's looking unlikely fast to be anywhere near top form anyway after that yeah after missing the better part of a year with an ACL tear I mean and that is a huge blow because he is sensational and then Marco Royce obviously will play in a wide role or, or an attacking midfield role if fit but he got carted off with an ankle injury and the hope will be that he's fit because he's missed so many tournaments and um, he he deserves to at least go to a World Cup and, and have his moment, but we'll see. So while I agree that the starting midfield pair is outstanding, I do wonder if one of them gets hurt or needs a rest. Unless Goretzka finds his form, the drop-off is going to be significant. Yeah, I agree. Um you know, you've got people who have fallen away like Emily Chan over the last two years who's not even a consideration 
at the moment. I think uh, if Goretzka was not in a good shape, out of that group, the only one I would really look to to do similar sorts of things is Florian Neuhaus. And if he's not fit or he's not in great form, I think I would actually probably, unless they're playing like a you know semi-finals or something like that against a really good side, maybe look at playing Musiala there. Um, he's obviously more attuned to playing the attack-minded role plays as a 10 when Muller doesn't or comes on for Muller at the moment. I would prefer to see him in the team and Muller pushed out to the right-hand side instead of Hoffman, for example, to get them both in. But I would probably look at Musiala because he's the most quality that they've got. And it is, like you say, a really, really big drop-off otherwise. And I think that there's so much uh, uncertainty about who you start at number nine, whether it's Royce, whether it's Timo Werner, whether it's Kai, whether it's Gnabry... Either way, you don't know if you're going to get an outrageously good performance or a totally anonymous misfit performance from any of them at the moment. So I would um, I would think that there'll be a big emphasis on getting good quality performance out of Musiala at some stage, but where that is, we'll see. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, in attack, then, you've got Timo Werner, who... Has looked a bit more like his old self since going back to Leipzig. Uh, Serge Gnabry, who looks nothing like his old self, he went from being possibly the best winger on the planet two years ago to to Bayern fans questioning why he's in the team each week. Um, Thomas Muller, again, he's the captain, or he's the be vice captain to, to Neuer, I assume. Um, probably the last hurrah for him, and, and, and rightly so. It, for me... I, I don't think he should still be in the team. Um, Leroy Sané is... I mean, when he's on, he's he's probably the best left winger on the planet. But you just don't get it out of him every single game. The other options then, Kareem Adeyemi. I wonder if they bring him just because he can be such a potent goal threat. Now, he hasn't had a great start at Dortmund. Obviously, he had the injury and been working his way back in. Uh, Lucas Nemechia, who formerly of Man City, now at Wolfsburg, a, a decent young player, but maybe not proven enough to warrant a spot in, in the, the squad for the World Cup. Uh, there's, there's a good defence there that if, if you could find a way to pick, I think you're right. I think a back three would suit basically all of them. Like David Rom, definitely more wing back than full back. Same with uh, Robin Gosens, same with Benjamin Henricks. And I think Ginter, Carrere, Sewell, Bella Kotchup and Schlotterbeck all better suited to a back three, to being, you know, in Sula and Ginter's case, the middle one. And in the case of Carrere and Bella Kotchup, the right one, Schlotterberg, the left one, I think Rudiger's more suited to a back three. Klosterman's more suited to a back three. Ta is more suited to a back three. Um, Gunter probably more suited to a four and Robin Koch the same but Ridley Baku definitely more suited as wing back than full back um, but like you said I mean the manager Hansi Flick is a back four manager just had that's a look, just what he is just had a look at the um, lineups against England actually in the Nations League last time they met and it was 1-1 and it looks like they played a back three then uh, Schlotterbeck, Rudiger and Klosterman all started so unless Klosterman was full back and that was a a four with Raum on the other side. Possibly they played wing-backs then, but I don't watch that game because why would you? 
No, exactly. Well, why, why would you take? It may not take a glance. I'll take a glance this week at uh, at the reverse fixture: England, Germany, the the most dead rubber of dead rubbers. <laughs> um, and like the thing as well, then you play back three advanced wing backs. You've got your double pivot. You play Musiala. You play Muller, and then you just need one of the others, be it Werner, be it Nabry, be it Sane. And you've got a really strong team, like a really strong team. But I'm expecting, as you said, the four two three one most likely. Um, this is a it's a very talented team, and if one or two players in particular, the likes of Musiala or Kai Havertz, really steps up a level and shines at this World Cup, I do think Germany could win the whole thing because when you can control games as they will with Kimmich and Gundogan, when you've got that great goalkeeper and a defence that will keep you in games, all you need is one of your forward players to show up and get you goals. And regardless of form, Timo Werner gets goals. Serge Gnabry can get you goals. Thomas Muller loves scoring at World Cups. Absolutely fucking adores it. So there is a possibility for this German team that they could go all the way. Now, I, I think they'd be an outside shot, but I do have them in my group of teams that can win this tournament. I have them winning this group, and then I have them potentially meeting someone like Brazil in the quarterfinals, judging by the, the, the route they could take. So I think that'll be a, a potential whoever wins that one could go to the final sort of matchup. Obviously, by the time you get to the quarters, everybody's predictions have gone awry at some stage anyway, so you're going to get at least one or two uh, odd matchups you didn't expect, but that could be a, a proving ground, let's say. I don't think that they'll have too many issues getting through the group. Well, yeah, no. how, how far they can get stage. I'm, not, I'm undecided on Germany. Yeah, they shouldn't have any problems getting through. We will do, before the World Cup kicks off, we should do a pod where we literally do predictions for, you know, group winner, group runner-up. After the squads of the groups. Yeah, exactly. Once the squads come out, and then we'll do our, our knockouts and, and like a bracket type thing and and predict our winners. Um, let's do the last team then in this group. That is Japan. And obviously, they're one of the outsiders in this group. But it is a, it's a decent Japanese squad. There's a lot of talent here. They finished as runners-up in Group B of the Asian qualifiers. Um, Players people will be aware of more than anything. Uh, Maya Yoshida, formerly of Southampton for a long time. Um, Takiro Tomiyasu will absolutely be in the squad, assuming he is fit. Ko Itakuri, Itakura of Gladback, someone to keep an eye on, a, a quality centre-back or holding midfielder, uh, formerly of Man City. Um, Midfield-wise, Taki Minamino in the mix, of course. There is Rio Hatete of Celtic, who's an absolute joy to watch. There's the Celtic forward two, Maeda and Kyogo. They're both really, really good players. Uh, this is a it's a fun Japanese squad, Carl. Yeah, I really like the look of it. I've watched um, their last two games now. They played Korea uh, a couple of months ago, and then they beat USA 2-0 um, this international break. And really, really impressive. They're 
speed of play and the build-up is really good. It's a it's a quite a typical Japanese side in terms of what we've seen over the last couple of major tournaments in terms of it's like technically really good in the build-up, good movement, quite aggressive, relatively small in terms of like not too much set-piece threat, not too much um, aggression, I would say, in attack individually. But they play so quickly and so on the front foot that it sort of gets around that problem anyway, to be honest. It's quite fluid. It kind of looks like somewhere in between a 4-3-3 and a 4-4-2. Uh, they've got a few players there who I think are like easily Champions League standard and could get bigger moves to places. People like Daichi Kamada, who's currently at Eintracht Frankfurt. Mm. I think he's one of the most fun non-top four or five teams in Europe. Um, he's, a, he's a very, very good creator and goal scorer, uh, just playing off the forward line. I really like um, Maeda, the, the Celtic forward that you mentioned. I think He's a, a good option, maybe not as a, as the actual starter for them, but someone who can either come off the bench and change things or give them a bit of a different dimension playing, maybe just from the left-hand side or so. Uh, Takakubo is really playing well this season as well uh, in, in Spain. Minamino, you've already mentioned. Wataro Endo is still like a really, really big player for them in midfield as well. And then they have a couple of people yeah. who are not in the squad, like Takahiro Tomiyasu um, of Arsenal as well, of course, uh, at the He's moment. Excellent. Yeah, so, I mean, they've, they've got players who can come in and be absolutely holding their own against some of the uh, the bigger nations and bigger teams that they might face. The best thing I think Japan have in terms of their uh, options to progress in this World Cup is that they are a lot more settled and set in their system and way of playing and even in the lineup in most respects than a couple of the teams they're going to come up against in this group. Like They have much clearer identity at the moment in terms of formation and in terms of playing style than Spain, for example. It doesn't necessarily translate, obviously, to they will beat them because of that, but they at least know how they're going to try and beat them. And I'm not 100% sure that Spain do at the moment, to be perfectly honest. No, I agree with that. I do agree with that. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for this uh, this Japanese squad. And, you know, they're, they, like the US men's national team, they've called up a ton of players over the last 12 months, but it's more of a focus thing where they kind of have a B squad that will play in certain situations where they don't feel like they need to have the race squad. And they'll have training camps where they'll call up players just to have them involved or, or get a closer look at them. Uh, Moriyasu, the coach, has done, I think, a, a really impressive job since taking over in 2018. Right, that is Group E. Um, so I would say Germany top, Spain second, Japan third, Costa Rica fourth. I'm gonna agree with that. Yes, but um, is there a possibility think, that one of the two European cl- countries go out? Hundred percent, absolutely. So, and it'll be Japan who can go through. And I was just gonna say, I, I, I think Spain will do enough. But the last game of this group is Japan against Spain, and I could definitely, definitely see. If Japan have got that win in the in the second game against Costa Rica, which they should, um, I can definitely see Japan doing enough to beat Spain in this game. It absolutely shock them, and it might even be that they don't have to because if, like I say, Costa Rica against Spain in that first match, there's every chance we've seen it with Spain before. Starting a tournament, they you know have the possession, but they have no penetration. They miss a couple of chances, mm-hmm. but they basically don't create enough, and maybe they only take a draw there. And if they only take a draw in that game and then Germany beat them, Japan have already beaten Costa Rica. Japan only have to draw and they're through. Yeah. I think it's absolutely possible that Spain go out of this group. And the the weakness in that Spain team, as we've mentioned, is, is that 
not even just the def- it's the defensive diamond. It's it's Busquets, the centre backs, and the goalkeeper. And the issue being Busquets' lack of mobility and the centre-backs, if they're asked to step out and try and fill that space, they're not the most forceful in doing that. They're not aggressive enough in doing that. There's a lot of hesitancy. And the one thing with this Japanese team is they move the ball really slickly and they're really intelligent players and they, they find space that the opposition has left and they exploit it. So you could see a situation where Japan just routinely play around Busquets and Pau Torres has to step out and meet him. And all of a sudden, you've got one of the wide players, be it Kubu or um, Kubo or, or Minamino, darting into that space, Daichi dropping in, finding the runner, and Maeda then kind of circling at the back post for a, a tap-in. You know, you're going to have moments in that game for sure where Japan just pulls Spain apart. There is, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of whether Spain can can do the job at the other end. Um, let's jump quickly then to Group F because we have spent too long on Group E. Uh, Belgium, Canada, Morocco and Croatia. Belgium topped Group E and I think will be favourites to top in the in the qualifier officer, obviously. And will be favourites to uh, to top this group. And I think they're one of the favourites to win the competition. But, Carol, this is a Belgian team that has routinely let themselves down at major tournaments. And it is likely the last major tournament for a number of these players. You've got a 33-year-old Toby Alderweireld, a 35-year-old Jan Vertonghen. Uh, you've got a 33-year-old Axel Witzel, De Bruyne and... Eden Hazard, the kind of the golden boys of the generation, they're both 31. You know, this isn't a, a young team anymore. This is a team that has aged in front of us. Dries Mertens at, at 35, probably his last tournament too. This is their last chance because this group of players should have had more success. This group of players should have won a major tournament with Thibaut Courtois, one of the best keepers of the generation. Those defenders I mentioned, Alderweireld and Vertonghen. De Bruyne and Hazard, arguably at one point two, the top five or six players in the world. The likes of Mertens, Batshuayi, um, Lukaku, obviously, if fit, if fit. That, that is a team that should have, if not won a tournament, it should have got to a final at some, yeah, some I, stage. I think that that's the, that's the real thing, because this you got to remember, this group of Belgian players came through after like one of the worst periods in their history. They didn't qualify for a tournament in 2004, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2012. None of those tournaments they made. And then this group started coming together, and they were really, really good. And it was like the 2014 World Cup was like probably their proving ground, and they sort of showed what they could be in the next couple of years. But it was supposed to be like this World Cup, the last Euros, and even the World Cup we've, in 2018, where they were like one of the best in the world. And that's what you say. They've not even come close. They've had one semi-final in all of those. That's not really close, really, considering that they didn't really look like at any point the best team. Uh, maybe the odd game where they looked like they were showing what they were capable of. But by and large, three-quarter final places, that was like, I would say one of those were like, okay, and one of them were 
underwhelming even to get to that stage to be honest mm. so it was never the case that this this team has shown that they were one of the best on the planet um so i think that not even getting close is is the big disappointment in terms of the group um they haven't got a couple of people in at the minute like romelu lukaku and that who we presume would be there if they were fit and available but even a few of them like jeremy doku has not quite gone on and done what people were hoping for yeah. Um, probably the same with Adnan Yanozai, who's now what, 27, 28, something like that, and has never really been anywhere near the required level. Dennis Pryat was always a big squad player and has just fallen away completely. And then even people like, um, I couldn't speak completely, forgotten his name, Yuri Tillemans, like this year has been like a really poor year for him. Eden Hazard has had like three really poor years at Real Madrid. So they've not exactly gone into this with everybody in the best base individually and at club level and everything so there's a bit of a bit more pressure on them I think this time than in previous competitions and I'm not 100% sure I think that they can go anywhere near winning this one either to be honest but in the interests of getting through this group feasibly I would say that I think they will go through this group and unless you want to say anything else on them I think there are three really really interesting teams to discuss in more depth yeah I agree with that I agree with that Let's move on then to the Canadians. They they won the CONCACAF group uh, in somewhat surprising fashion. They won it on goal difference, but ahead of Mexico and the US, who would have been far more highly fancied than them. Um, when we look at this squad in Canada, there are two standout talents that are a level above all of their teammates. But there's also some other interesting players the two standout talents obviously Alfonso Davies one of the best left backs in the world already at the age of 21 and Jonathan David long linked with Liverpool at Lille who is a proven goal scorer and a quality player the other one I really like from the squad who's done really well at national team level but had a bit of a mixed bag of a club career is Kyle Laren who, if you remember, was at Orlando City, exploded, did really well, forced a move to Besiktas. It was a disaster originally. He was sent on loan to uh, Zulte Warigem. Um It didn't go all that well for me. There was a bunch of players who were falling apart in their career at the time. Uh, Saido Berhino was there at the same time. He went back to Besiktas and was brilliant for a year. Then he had an iffy year last year and was sold to Club Bruges in the off-season. He can, when he's in the mood, he can really show the qualities that had Premier League clubs looking at him when he was twenty twenty one. He's just inconsistent. But who else stands out for you in this squad? Well, the disrespect to former Liverpool under-23s legend Liam Miller is incredible. Um... Hmm. There's um, quite a few players actually in this squad that I like. I like very much the overall improvement of Canadian football and the way that they have put together a group which is not just capable of getting to the World Cup. We should probably point out this is only the second time they've ever made a finals. It's like a huge, huge thing for them to have finally got there. They've never won a game at the World Cup, never scored a goal at the World Cup, so this will be huge for them. Um, But to come from basically nowhere to suddenly be not just rivaling, but arguably better than the United States at the moment is a, is a major thing. Like even, let's say, in the in the Gold Cup, they've had a, 
a really gradual build-up from like group stage pretty much every year and get knocked out to semi-finals in 2021. So you can see that there's a real upward curve there. This isn't just like a fluke qualification. They've really put a lot of work into developing a squad. Most of the people that are in the group that are going to go to the World Cup are all like 20 caps and above. So it's a group which has been together for quite a while. They also have a few players who I didn't really realise were still A, playing, and B, not 45 years old, because I'm pretty sure Junior Hoylett was like one of the first people I ever signed on Championship Manager in like 1992 or something like that. So how he's still playing and is only 32 years old, I've absolutely no idea at all. Um, I do quite like um, Estacchio, who plays in midfield with... And then also in defence, we've got a couple of players like uh, Cornelius, that Cornelius is playing in, in Greece, I think, at the minute. But like you say, Alfonso Davies is like the big, big standout in terms of an outlet. And Jonathan David is obviously the, the main man in attack for lots and lots of build-up play to go through him. And obviously his scoring rate at international level is very, very good as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think the best way to sum up the rise of Canadian football is that they've come a long way from when Craig Forrest and Paul Pesky Scalito were the most notable Canadian internationals that any English person could name. And that other than the Owen Hargreaves being born in Canada thing, they haven't really been a notable football entity for a long time, like a long, long time. Like you said, it's only their second appearance at a World Cup. They were at the World Cup in 86. They went out in the group stage. The plus for them is they'll be at this one. They'll be at the next one as well as one of the hosts. Um, so, you know, that can that can become a habit for them that they start to qualify regularly for World Cups and, and potentially make a bit of a splash do you think this team can make a bit of a splash? Because I think this is quite a tough group for them. Morocco and Croatia, obviously good teams, and we know what Belgium are. So I do think it's a really good group for them to go in because it's like quite open and three teams basically could go through if they catch fire at the right time and you know are well gelled and everybody on form and fit and all the rest of it. It's a, it's a really good opportunity. And I should probably also point out um, the goalkeeper, Maxim Kripo, is the LAFC goalkeeper. So they do have like a, a decent level goalkeeper is playing for them at a fairly high level, you know, prominent side, all that kind of thing. So I do mm. think that they're well placed to perform well. And do I think that they'll go through? I don't think they'll go through because they do so at the first time of asking you probably need one team who you know you're going to be better than. And they could win against Morocco or Croatia if they like if they play perfectly and everything goes well for them. You still probably need a little bit more than that as well. And you, it's very, very difficult ask to beat both of them. And they play Belgium first is the other thing. They have to, you know, if they lose that game, if they lose convincingly that game, they have to you know, not lose faith and not be completely down about it and not change the entire team or approach or anything like that. And all of those things are like, quite difficult to get on board with if you've had this massive, massive build-up and there's loads of celebration about it and then suddenly you get spanked 4-0 because Kevin De Bruyne turns up and has an absolute worldie against you. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so hopefully that doesn't happen, but it will be very, very difficult for them to in the top two. I, I think they'll score. I think they'll get you know some sort of point from the, from the group, but I'm not going to pick them to go through. It's a shame for them that 
they haven't been able to hold on to all of the best young players that were born in Canada. You know, Daniel Jebison, the young striker at Sheffield United, would be a nice addition to the squad as a big, rangy number nine. But the one they could really do it is the guy we talked about right at the start of the podcast, Fakayo Tamore, born in Canada. I know he moved to England when he was one or two, but he could be starting for Canada at this World Cup. And if they had him at centre-back um, next to, you mentioned Derek Cornelius earlier on, if they had those two at centre-back, that would be a really formidable pairing with Alfonso Davies at left-back and maybe someone like Alistair Johnson at, uh, Johnston at right-back. That that alone could could have made them not favourites to come out of the group, but, you know, given them a much bigger a bigger opportunity. I'm looking forward to seeing them. I'm excited to see what Davies does at a World Cup because I think he's just one of the big stars of the next generation. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. Moving on then to Morocco, they topped group. Um, they topped their group in the first stage of the qualifiers and then beat the Democratic Republic of Congo 5-2 on aggregate to come through. It's not a it's not a great Moroccan squad, but there are some exceptionally gifted players here. The most notable being Ashraf Hakimi, who after Trent might be the best right back on the planet. They've also got Nazar Mizrawi, who's another excellent right back. Um, Romain Sice is the captain. We've been watching him at Wolves for years. Yassin Bono, the goalkeeper from Sevilla. He's talented but inconsistent. Some of the midfielders have been around a long time. Amrabat is, you know, just a solid player who on his day can be very, very good. Ilias Chair from QPR, he's a player that always impresses me when I watch him. Now, admittedly, I don't watch QPR very often, but I'm I'm surprised he's still in the championship. Amin Harat has all the talent in the world, but just is always there's always something off with him. He's always either injured or out of form or the pain in the arse. In attack, you've got Hasim Zayic, never became the player he was meant to be. Munir, Munir El-Hadidi, who when he came through at Barca was meant to be the next big star and didn't quite work out. Sofian Bufal had a disappointing spell at Southampton, but remains talented. Yusuf Naziri, I really like, but he hasn't been in great form for the last year. Uh, it's a good squad, Carl, but it's just not... It's not the squad of a team, I think, that can do a whole lot of damage. One other player to keep note of, obviously, is Nayef Agard, who should be back, the West Ham centre-back. I do think he's really good. Um, and Adam Messina, obviously, long time of Watford, is another one who could be in the squad, but he's also injured. So there's a, there's good players. I just don't know if it's going to be a good team. Um I actually think different. I think that the best thing that Morocco have is that they have a really, really good setup. It's not absolutely elite players for sure, other than in a couple of cases, but they have a really set way of playing. They have a very uh, structured um, build up. They're very, very aggressive defensively and well organized for the most part. Um, I, I actually quite like this setup, to be honest, and they're really, really difficult to beat. I mean, the run of games that they've had over the last sort of two, three years, in fact is exceptionally impressive um, since mid what, 2019 I think they've lost three games one was a penalty shootout one was um, to Mohamed Salah scoring one and assisting another in the AFCON in extra time 
And then the other one was when they changed shape completely against the United States earlier this year and they got beaten 3-0. Uh, but most of the time they are 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, sort of variation or just one off the front man. It's really, really structured. Like I say, it's very, very hard work. And I think Morocco are going to be a really pain in the ass team to beat for any of these sides, to be honest. Um, I can see Morocco being actually maybe one of the teams who cause one of the biggest upsets at this World Cup. Interesting. Interesting. I, like, I, I do agree that they're very well organised and they're very hard to beat. I just... I mean, I look at that same run of games and if they beat a bad Ghana team, they beat a bad Chile team. I mean, who else have they beaten? Yeah, there's not a huge amount of massive talent there because of the, obviously the, the qualifiers and the AFCON games early on, at least in the tournament. That's the area of the world that they play in. You can't really do much about that, but it does allow them to be extremely well organised and extremely well set in terms of how they want to play, how they think mm-hmm. that they're going to get their wins in the games that they need to and maybe I would say also the arrangement of the group fixtures, I've spoken about this before um, I think that that's really really important and maybe an overlooked part of the group stage and who gets through, I think this one probably works out in their favour We have Croatia first I think that that's a maybe the all important game in terms of who goes through, can start well and get a result in that one then it sets them up pretty nicely I think yeah, because they get the toughest game as the middle yeah. game with Belgium, and then they play Canada last. Um, so yeah, I do agree that the the structure of the fixtures does work in their favour. And yeah, I mean, look, if Hakimi pops off, and if a couple of the attacking players can can show a consistent level of form, if En Naziri can be what he can be, then it is absolutely possible that they can beat Croatia or get a draw with Croatia and then beat the Canadians and, and get through. Um, I just, I don't know, I, I just think there's there's a ceiling on There them. definitely is. I mean, um, they're not obviously going to go... Because of how... They, yeah, they're not going to go too far in no, the not win. <laughs> no, but I mean, even like, probably in terms of maybe last 16, depending on if they come second in the group, let's say, you've, then you're going to play the winners from the Spain-Germany group. That's probably the ceiling right yeah. there and then, but that would also be quite successful for them. Um, I think the one player in the middle who they really need to have a good tournament is Sofian Amrabat. I think he's a really good central midfielder, ball winner, distributor, everything else. If he plays well, they're a really difficult side to break down. Uh, obviously, they need Ziyech to play well, and he's been playing like some sort of troll who lives under a bridge over the last few months. But I'm sort of banking a little bit on him going, not causing problems, and then turning up because he wants to show himself on the world stage. The one... X-Factor player, let's say, that I think that they have and they have to take him and they have to give him the opportunity to play is Abdi Ezalzuli, who's the Barcelona winger, who's on loan at Osasuna and he is absolute dynamite. I love this player. He's, yeah. he's a bit of a mad thing and he's obviously not consistent and he's quite capable of losing the ball in frustrating ways. He is a man and if they give him the opportunity to play at key moments in games, not necessarily from the start, that's where they can win. Yeah, he he is one of the more enjoyable players to watch in Europe right now. And he, he's only 20, he's a kid. He is immensely frustrating, but <laughs> by God, when, he, when he it all works for him... Yeah, he does. Like, there's a... He, when, he's, when he's good, he looks like Garincha. And when he's bad, he looks like Milan Barros. Head down... Heading for a corner flag, 
no intention at all to pass the ball. Like the ball goes to him and it remember that Turkish winger, was it Emery Moore? Emery Moore, yeah. Yeah, Emery Moore. Yeah, and it's the same type of like genius talent, but no awareness that he's actually playing a football match with teammates that he's allowed to pass the ball (laughs) to. You just give him the ball and he's off and away the races all by himself. Um, yeah, he, he is extremely gifted. And I, I really do want to see him. I want to see him play. I actually think if, the, now I know it'll be probably Zayic on the right because putting in on the left foot, but I wonder if he might benefit, if, if Abdi might benefit from playing on the right with, with, um, Hakimi overlapping him demanding the ball off him and probably giving him an earful every time he doesn't get it. Because those two together could form an absolutely unstoppable right side. Like, they could be ridiculous together. Um, Yeah, I hope he goes. I really hope he goes. Let's move on then to the last team in the group, that is Croatia. They topped Group H. Um, The Russians finished second, but were obviously then thrown out. Slovakia, Slovenia, Cyprus, and Malta. Seven wins, two draws, just the one defeat for Croatia. It is an aging Croatia squad in some ways. They're still heavily reliant on the likes of Luka Modric, Rosevic. The midfield. (laughs) The midfield, yes, exactly. Um, But there's a lot of talent here as well. So... Uh, Yo- Josip Stanisic, uh, the young defender at Bayern Munich, I quite like him. Borna Barisic at, at Rangers is okay. Uh, unfortunately, the pebble remains part of the squad. Uh, so for that, I can never support them. But Borna Sosa, I love at left back. Josko Gvardiol is one of the best young defenders in the world. I like Juranovic from Celtic. Uh, Vida, I could do without. So much talent in midfield. Lovro Meyer, exceptional. Mateo Kovacic, exceptional. Modric is an all-timer. Brozovic is excellent. Uh, Nikola Vlasic, who hates the Premier League um, and must just despise the sight of anything English at this point, he's really good. Uh, Pasalic is really good. Lukas Susic is an absolute star in the making. Ivan Perisic is still Ivan Perisic. In attack, you've got uh, Kramaric. You've got Petkovic, who I'm not sure he's all that good. Uh, Antti Budimir, who's at Osasuna, is a decent player. And Mislav Orsic, who was meant to join Burnley in January, didn't, stayed in Croatia and then destroyed Chelsea's hopes and dreams recently. A good player. Not in the squad for this group, uh, this this current group of games. You've got Kaleta Carr, excuse me, Kaleta Carr, who's a good player. Uh, Rosalco, who's frustrating, and I think he might be retired from international football. Um, Josip Bracalo, who remains a, a mystery to me. And that's about it, really. It, it, there's a lot of talent here, Carl, but I don't know who's getting them who's getting them goals at an international tournament. That's the big thing I look at in that squad, and I see, I see a big hole at centre-back, a big <laughs> pebble-sized hole at centre-back, and I don't see a goal scorer. Yeah, that's a problem, and it's still basically Perisic or Perisic crossing for Kramaric, and that's kind of it. Um, 
no hiding about this they're going to be behind the midfield and that's what's going to win or lose them the game Um, if the midfield really really turns up there's not a lot you can do about it and you've just got to try and repel them when they do get themselves into the final third and if the midfield is not absolutely on it or you can bypass the midfield with with your own system you've got a chance because as much as I do like people like Vardio I think he's a good player Um, Sosa's a a, a good left back there's definitely gaps in that even on that side of the defence and the partnerships that they had before are kind of sort of mostly broken down or gone now um, you know, for ages and ages it was Vida and Lovren and they were like immovable parts of defence and it's probably not quite as much now maybe they end up playing both of them but uh, I'd say at least Gvardiol will start one way or another but they have chopped and changed quite a bit in like the Nations League games and that sort of thing so it could be quite a new look um, defence at the very least and I think that there's probably where they will fall down um, I, I just think that you know even if you put like you just mentioned like playing Abde and Hakimi on the right hand side if you're playing them against Juranovic and Sutalo play on that side or something like that that's they're going to be cut through over and over and over and over again and if it's Lovren and mm. even um, Barisic as well the, there's not too much movement and mobility and speed and everything there unless it's in a straight line so there's definitely ways in behind this Croatia team. I like it how it's set up, but it's a bit it's a bit predictable how they play and how they try to to win games. So it's not necessarily their fault, I don't think, because I don't really see anyone else that they could put in and be an absolute game changer. Um, it's mostly four three three because they have three really good central midfielders. I'm not really sure where that leaves player because I know you like him and you'd probably have him in your starting eleven, but. Oh, I absolutely. don't really know where they would put him in this. In this, it's been sort of Pasalic, sort of the narrow right-sided forward, Kramaric, and then Perisic on the left. That's kind of the typical sort of three attacking setup that they have. Or Vlasic comes in and he plays that narrow right-sided. So there's not really a absolute natural role where he sort of fits, translating from club level straight into this international team. There's not. No. Um, for me, what I might look to do is just go absolutely bananas, play Perisic at right back and just tell him to bomb forward because he's two-footed, Borna Sosa at left back, Gvardiol and anybody not named Lovren at centre-back, Kovacic, Modric and Brozovic as a midfield three, and then Lovremeyer and Lukas Susic behind Pasalic as a false nine and just try and, you know, Spain 2010 teams to I think death. there's too many players, isn't uh, it? No, that's 11 players. You, did you say a four oh, of the back? back five? Sorry. <laughs> I thought you'd no, no, no. Anybody back. but Lovren. Oh, okay. okay. Perisic is a no, fullback. No, I mean, it's, if, proper fullback. Okay. P- proper what? fullback. Don't cross the halfway line. <laughs> You're wasting up there. 11 um, That's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, look. It's, it's the last hurrah for many of these players. And I think we can all agree that what we'd like to see is that Dejan Lovren goes out in embarrassing fashion, <laughs> getting absolutely rinsed by Abdi or by anybody else. Eden Hazard decide, remembering that he used to be great and tormenting the poor fella. I don't really mind who it is. I just, I'm just here to see the pebble fail, uh, as he has done repeatedly in his career. And then see him do an interview where he calls himself the best centre-back in the world again. That's that's always fun. Um, no, look, Croatia, the, there's there's a lot of talent, but unfortunately for them, it is mostly in their midfield. 
like there's a seven man group of midfielders there. All of them are very good. Uh, there aren't. I I don't think there's seven really good players in the entire rest of the squad. I think there's two defenders, Gvardiol and Sosa. I don't know enough about uh, uh, Satolo. Um, I don't think the goalkeepers. Uh, Livakovic, he's all right. Uh, Lovre Kalinic is awful. Like, genuinely as bad a goalkeeper as I've ever seen. Um, and as I said earlier, Kramerich, yeah, but I mean, what is, he's kind of a one in four type of striker and you play three group games, so chances are he won't score. Uh, Perisic is obviously very good, but the rest of the attack I'm not sure of. Orsic I do like, but he's never really shown that he's international quality. Um, he's had a, a, a bizarre career where he went and spent quite a lot of time in Asia in kind of his prime years or his early prime years uh, before going home. Even then, though, I'd say, again, I, I there's just, not really a, a natural spot for him in this lineup because they play three in midfield. No. No, exactly. I just, I don't see it. I think, I think Belgium top, Croatia second, Morocco third, Canada fourth is probably what I expect. But it really wouldn't surprise me if Croatia finished bottom of the group, <laughs> let alone third. Yeah, this is pretty much what I was saying at the start. I think that there is real openness to this three behind Belgium, basically. I do think that it literally just needs one team to catch at the right time, have a really good performance, win a game. And that might be enough, really. You know, you get a draw in one of the others, and you, you might be through. Basically, I think I think Croatia yeah. are actually going to miss out. I, they look like they should go through. They look like they have the team and the squad, which is a little bit better. Um, let's say average level of player, which is better than the other two. I think that that's the case. So they should go through, but I don't quite like the balance of it, and it is really sometimes a bit of a struggle to see them score more than like a couple of goals in the game. They hit three against Austria um, this week, just now gone, yeah. Uh, Dejan Lovren actually scored one of them, so maybe that's the answer. Put him up front. You solve your defensive woes, he'll score your goals at the other end. <laughs> and uh, other than that, they don't really tend to score more than two per game. But they don't lose very many either. So, again, it's, it is all they about don't. that midfield. I think... Again, I'm going to say it's going to come down to that first game. If Morocco turn up and really put on a performance, I think Morocco will go through and they beat Croatia in that first match. But Morocco have to be nearly perfect to do that. So if they don't, I guess it's Croatia to go second. Right. So we will leave that group there. We will leave this podcast there. And we will be back for those listening in a few minutes to record the next one. And for those uh, who are listening to this after the fact, uh, we'll be back in a couple of days to do the next two groups. Group G, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, Cameroon. And Group H, which I think is a really interesting one. Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay and South Korea. So we will see you next time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.